This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Welcome to the show. The past few days have seen some positive developments on several matters affecting federal employees, including health benefits for Postal Service people and gathering support for restoration of Social Security benefits to older federal retirees. I got the rundown from the Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton. The Postal Service Health Benefits Program was created or needs to be created pursuant to the Postal Service Reform Act, which passed last year. And so OPM is charged with administering this new program, which is just going to be a parallel set of plans to FEHB for postal employees and annuitants. Now, it's an interim rule because they need to get uh, this program started and they don't have the time to issue a final rule, uh, but this interim rule will be in effect and govern the beginning of the program. So it may change in the future, uh, but this is really what we're looking at. The rule, rule itself is very much reflective of the statutory language. There's there's not that much flexibility that the post, that OPM had in implementing it because a lot of what was required was set forth very clearly in the statute. Well, what does it change for postal employees then? Well, the the program itself um, will shift people from that federal side to this postal side. And it may differ based on your plan, but if you're in one of the major plans, instead of being in the, let's say, Blue Cross Blue Shield plan on the federal side, you will be in the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan on the postal side. If you have a smaller carrier, that may be a, a situation where it's still unclear whether those smaller carriers are going to offer plans in the postal program. But it's pretty clear that most of the larger plans will. We still don't know that based on the interim rule, uh, but certainly there's an expectation that the larger plans within FEHB will offer this postal service alternative. Uh, The law itself requires that the terms of coverage be um, equivalent in the initial contract year in 2025. Um, And so that's another thing to note. This isn't taking place next year. It's the year after that in 2025. And so these postal service employees and retirees will then shift over there. The coverage should be very similar to what they get in FEHB. The only difference is a requirement that uh, Part D is integrated with these plans. That should really just help reduce the prescription drug coverage for annuitants um, and basically everyone because the overall cost will come down, but reduce the cost of prescription drugs for those in that postal side plan. And so that's those are the kind of the, the main outlines of what it'll look like. So there's not a postal employees HBP, like a PEHBP. They're still in the federal, but they have a separate plan. That means the pricing it's, could be different. Yes, the pricing will be based on separate risk pools. So I think what where we've heard confusion from some of our members is they think they're in a con- totally different plan, but it's still going to be the same carrier underneath a new umbrella, but still administered by OPM. So OPM is still administering the program. You're likely to have the same carrier unless that carrier drops out. The coverages should be very similar. The pricing may be slightly different. Because it's integrated with Medicare, what you're likely to see is lower costs, all else equal. Now, you can't predict right now what factors there will be that will increase costs outside of this change in policy, but people should see 
the result of this policy lowering costs. Well, if it's integrated with Medicare, that's for annuitants, though, right? Not for active postal employees. That is true. So, but the the cost of premiums is based on the average cost of covering people in the plan. So if Medicare is picking up more costs for annuitants, that's going to benefit the employees as well. Now, for current annuitants, they're not going to be required to pick up Part B, which has additional premiums, but there will be a special enrollment period starting in April 1st of 2024 for six months, which if you've previously not enrolled, you have a new opportunity to go back in, not get those late enrollment penalties. So you're likely to see an increase of enrollment in Part B from current annuitants by choice. For those who don't want to do it, they will have the choice to refrain. And so that'll help reduce the average cost there. And the other element is the prescription drug integration, and we'll see some increased in cost savings through that. But the impetus behind this in the first place was that there is a different risk profile for postal employees versus the rest of the federal workforce? No, I think the impetus is gaining, shifting costs to Medicare, essentially. The Postal Service is saving money on this because Medicare will be picking up more costs for health coverage uh, because more people will be enrolling in Part B a little bit in the short term voluntarily, but that in the future, people will be required to enroll in Part B. And then also through that Part D integration, there's a reduced cost. Now, there were concerns and we had concerns that you're changing this risk pool. What's that going to do to the federal risk pool? The average cost of coverage for postals is a little bit higher than the federal side. So they're gaining the benefit of the reduced cost for Medicare. The federal side is gaining the benefit from losing uh, the higher cost to cover postal employees and retirees who tend to be a little older on average. Right. So the idea then that there are more people that are going to be in the retirement pool, relatively speaking, therefore getting Medicare sort of subsidies and therefore lower for everybody, even those that are not retired yet, is the general idea? Yes, correct. And will the dog bite coverage be different for people in the postal system? (laughs) No, it's going to be the same. (laughs) So there's actually explicit language in the law that was reiterated in the interim rule that says that these terms of coverage have to be equivalent. Got it. Well, let's hope those new postal electric trucks don't light on fire. (laughs) That could create another risk pool. (laughs) And let's move on to Social Security Fairness Act. It has not become law that would repeal the WEP and the GPO but it's gaining supporters. What's going on? Yeah. So um, that's the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. I'm sure your older readers covered by CSR, uh, listeners covered by CSRS understand what those are because they reduce their social security benefits unfairly because they have that CSRS pension. So we've long supported repeal of these provisions. We think you're, you're taking into account income in a different system to reduce your benefits under social security. What we've seen this year is we're already up at 223 co-sponsors in the House. Uh, That's significantly more than we were last Congress at the same time. That's a majority of the House now. It's the second uh, most co-sponsors of any bill in the entire Congress. So we're, we're gaining momentum from last Congress where we were able to get committee action on the bill. And so trying to get additional co-sponsors, see if we can push Congress to take some action finally on this um, after they took committee action last year uh, is the hope. So I I think it's a big milestone to hit so early in the Congress, especially where we are comparative to other bills and last Congress. Interesting. So is there a Senate counterpart, though, to this? 
Yes, there's a Senate counterpart. I believe that co-sponsors are around 37 right now. So uh, getting to a majority in the Senate will be a taller order. You'll also need really 60 votes in the Senate to pass. I think chances for repeal still, it's a big hill to climb for that, mainly because the cost of repeal is so high. Um, but it, it may also put pressure on some more modest reforms um, on both WEP and GPO. So that's our hope. Keep the pressure up. Uh, show that there is widespread bipartisan support for addressing these issues in Congress and, and see where we can go from there. Okay, and let's move on to the issue of the Office of Personnel Management itself. The retirement services processing is actually inching a little better, isn't it? Yeah, they're they're improving the initial retirement claims processing um, where, you know, I think they're the standard is 60 days on average. They're, they're down from, I think, where they were, 84 down to 81, and they previously up in the 90s. So it's nice to see that improvement. It's nice to see that attention. Um, but we're still hearing from our members, you know, issues not just with that initial retirement processing, but also with survivor annuity applications, changes in health insurance enrollment. And, and probably the thing we hear the most is just simply being able to get in touch with OPM via the phone. So you have an issue, you're not sure where your claim is, you try to call in and it's very difficult to get through. And, you know, we tell people call at 7.40 a.m. and that's the best time to call. Well, that's a tough that's a tough order to tell somebody in Hawaii or on the West Coast uh, to do. You know, OPM's numbers on this say it's a 30 minute average wait time. I'm not sure that includes unanswered calls or abandoned calls. So getting a little bit more support there would be great. And, and I think, you know, we know that they're in a paper-based system. They need modernization. They recognize it themselves. And I think the long-term solution is to incrementally move towards that modernization. Uh, they're pushing for things like a retirement app, online retirement application, so they can do digital case management as well. So there's a question, will they get that funding from Congress to be able to implement those things? And, and we would like to see that, obviously. <laughs> It seems like they need a tie into the other agencies because when someone mm -hmm. retires, the complication is what do they earn at what time, et cetera, every yeah. year of their career that they were in the federal government. And if you switched agencies mid-career and got a bump in pay, it comes down to pennies or dollars a week or something of your annuity. But it has to be 100% accurate because that's what's statutorily right. required. So I've always wondered if that is even within OPM's power to get those hooks to make it all electronic? Well, if you start by having an online retirement application that requires the inputs from the agencies are in electronic form and then can be processed in electronic form, I think that starts to allow OPM to process them more quickly. Uh, increases the accuracy of the information they're getting. Right now, they, there are problems with the information OPM gets. Like they, they record, each agency has different error rates for their applications, as high as I think 13% come in without some information. So an agency sends in a retirement application, it's missing the necessary documentation to show that somebody gets health benefits in retirement. That could cause a delay in OPM. They have to go back to the agency. Um, you mentioned people moving agencies. They may have records at the National Archives in St. Louis. That takes a lot of time to get. So there's, it is true what you say that not everything is on OPM based on the current system. Um, a lot of times the delays don't reside in them, but can the system be changed, led by OPM, 
to make it more efficient, to reduce those errors and to increase the processing time. And that's what we'd like to see, a more modern system that allows OPM to integrate better with the agencies and have that information at the start um, so they can do their job more, more efficiently. And that's John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear from Max Steyer of the Partnership for Public Service on this year's Best Places to Work. This is FedLife. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. The latest rankings of best places to work in the federal government are out. They're compiled each year by the Partnership for Public Service. A big issue is that employee engagement and satisfaction scores are still declining in too many places. For commentary on this year's rankings, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with the partnership's president, Max Steyer. I think it's concerning. Whether I'm surprised or not, I am concerned. And it's not just this year. It's the fact that this is two years running. Um, a more, much more consequential drop last year, um, but we're going in the wrong direction, and that's not good for anybody. From what you've seen or heard or what the partnership has been looking at, what do you think are some of the contributing factors to this declining score? Worth recalling that this is uh, data that was collected last year, essentially mid-year last year, and uh, there was a lot going on. And, you know, Federal employees, like every American, had to deal with inflation that was substantially higher than any of us could, you know, remember in, in near term, and it made a real difference for people's lives. You know, for federal employees, what's a little different is that they experience the the impact themselves directly, and many of them are again on the front lines of trying to deal with the problem itself. We certainly had and continue to have turmoil over the operating condition of the government, like whether folks are required to be in office while they're working or they can work in other places. And I think uncertainty is not a good thing. In any sort of organizational context, it causes oftentimes more harm than, you know, answers that are unpleasant, but but at least are known. You know, you combine the increased workload from uh, the many, many commitments that are being made at the federal level with the broader economic issues and the challenging work environments. And that's a you know tough combination. I think the message, however, for leaders in the Biden administration is that they have more to do. They need to step up. Um, that's their responsibility to deliver services to the public effectively. And having an engaged workforce is fundamental in, in, in the ability to succeed in doing that. One thing that was striking to me from the results was that, at least in the top 10 large agencies, only two actually increased their agency-specific engagement and satisfaction scores overall. Do you think that there's some sort of takeaway or, or lesson that agencies who maybe did a little bit better in the rankings, is there anything that other agencies maybe can learn from that? It's a good observation that even those that were on top still largely saw declines at the large agency level, and that's less true in the you know medium and small. And I think, importantly, it, it's still the case that a quarter of the organizational components that we measured, so you know agency or subcomponent, they went up. And it's so important because we did just discuss many of the large environmental issues that I think, play a role in, in, in the decline. 
But the fact that a quarter of those agencies still went up tells you that good leaders can overcome difficult environments. And I think the consistent lesson for all of us is, you know, you need leaders who first and foremost care. So understand that this is a fundamental part of their job uh, is to create environments that engage their employees and two, prioritize it because there's so much going on that the tendency, especially for short-term leaders, is to focus on what they think is the immediate delivery and not worry about the longer-term uh, investments that are, are important. And three, that they uh, have the skills and capabilities to succeed as, as leaders of these large organizations. These jobs are unbelievably hard. I believe way harder than the private sector. And we need people who have the right skills that are not policy experts, but, but large organization experts in these positions, and that they're supported for making the human investments that are fundamental to long-term success. In some of the conversations that I've had with agency leaders, when they look at the best places to work rankings, for example, uh, chief human capital officers at NASA over the years have talked about, you know, with their rankings, it's not necessarily as important where you fall compared to other agencies, but looking within your long-term trends within your own agency, does that hold true for you? Where, you know, where do you see the line between how much or where agency leaders should be paying attention to the results here? If you're an individual leader responsible for a single agency, I think you absolutely should be looking at the trend line. And no one should feel like they can rest on their laurels uh, just because, you know, they're at the top, like a NASA, or give up because they're at the bottom. Like, I think the trend line is, is really fundamental. But no agency operates within a talent vacuum. And I think it's very important to benchmark yourself against your peer agencies and also against the private sector, because once again, the federal government isn't, even though it sometimes behaves this way, uh, a, a isolated island. It, it exists within the larger framework of a national labor market, and private sector actors are competing for the best of talent against the federal agencies. So they need to provide not just the sense of purpose, which is profoundly special in the government, but also well-run, well-led organizations if they're going to not just recruit but retain the best talent. So you need to do both. You need to look at your own individual trend line. You need a benchmark against you know, the, the larger labor market. You need to understand what's happening and you know, respect the fact that you may be swimming upstream against difficult issues, but you still can have an impact. Immediate supervisors do typically get higher scores than agency leaders. Why is that? And have you ever seen that trend reverse? It's almost a little bit a version of, you know, you're, you're like your individual congressman, but you don't think well of Congress. A long time back, there was an example where that, that had flipped for a particular agency. That's very, very rare. A 25-point gap, which is what exists right now between supervisor and senior leader, that's very large. It doesn't have to be that large. So it may be that you'll always have or most always have the better perception of your frontline supervisor, but there's a lot of room for improvement for senior leaders before they get to the point of flipping it. The partnership's rankings last year saw a steep drop in satisfaction since 2020, and at the time, many people were saying the government was at something called an inflection point. There's this moment where agencies were seeing the scores decreasing, and it was up to them to take action to turn things around. Are we still at that inflection point a year later, and how do agencies turn things around from here? 
it's so important not to see this as a, a sort of a, a sprint to the test where the goal is, you know, how do I just improve next year's scores? The longer term trend lines are really quite relevant, especially for the large agencies. It takes, you know, a considerable amount of time to to move the ship. You know, on one hand, one might argue, oh, it's a one point drop rather than a four point drop or whatever it is. I think it's the wrong direction for most agencies and it's the wrong direction for the overall government for sure. How you turn it around is easy said, hard to do. The you know easy said is that you need leaders to first and foremost care enough that they prioritize this as an issue. And I think part of the challenge is that many leaders see their job as delivering for the present rather than investing for the future. There's understandable reasons for that. But I don't think at the end of the day, they're the right right choice. Once again, even in an environment where you've seen decline, there's still a case that a quarter of the organizations went up. And I would look to those places and the leaders in those places and what they're doing for good examples of how to change things around. It's first and foremost an issue of, of caring and prioritizing and then making the, the smart investments and building off success. Oftentimes, people look at the broken elements of, of things. And frankly, more progress can be made on building on your strengths often than trying to, to deal with weaknesses. You should deal with weaknesses. But you know people overlook how important it is to build on strength. And even in organizations that are seeing declines, my bet is they have components that are bucking the trend and that are going up. And I'd be paying attention to what the leadership is doing in those components. Something that the partnership has done a lot of research on and just discussed a lot is public trust in government. Does that connect back to some of the trends that we're seeing in the rankings here? There is certainly a relationship. And I think public trust, first and foremost, is, I believe, fundamental to our long-term success, our health of our democracy, and the willingness of the public to look to our government and invest in our government for big issues. So I think that the connection to me is back to mission delivery and what most people need to, what everyone should understand is that uh, this is not about happy employees. The employee engagement and satisfaction scores are about whether you have employees that are in environments that are gonna generate the the, the best outcomes uh, for the American people. and. I think one part of trust in government is the trustworthiness of government. So I don't think it's everything. Like I think you can have a trustworthy government that people don't really understand and therefore don't trust as much as they should, but very, very hard to have a trusted government if it's not delivering effectively on what it's supposed to do. What would be a final message that you'd want to leave agencies with as they're looking at these results? The most important thing is how much this matters to the, the mission and purpose of, of each and every one of these organizations. And the more leaders uh, embrace that, the more they recognize that an engaged workforce is fundamental to the success of the mission of the agency, the more likely it is that they do the right thing, which is to care and prioritize and invest in outcomes that will generate healthy, engaged workforces. Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Find more coverage of the best places to work at federalnewsnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to FedLife. We'll catch you next week. I'm Tom Tammen.
Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search Fed Life. 